All right. Hey, good morning, church. Man, we are so glad that you are, you are here this morning and able to be here and participate in the worship that we are uh, enjoying. And uh, thank you so much for the way that you've been encouraging those who are around you, for the way that you've encouraged me and my family today. I greatly appreciate it. If you're traveling through because of some type of family event, you're having uh, graduation celebrations or wedding celebrations, whatever it might be, um, we are so glad that you are here and decided to come and be with us uh, today. I was a little concerned if I was going to be able to be with you uh, this morning. It is wedding season, and uh, yesterday I uh, was able to participate uh, in a wedding. How many of you guys were at a wedding yesterday? Anybody at a wedding? Raise your hand. Anybody at a wedding? Some of you? Um, I think I've got a picture of the wedding that I was at. I worked really hard for this photograph. Go ahead and put that one up, guys. Man, it was awesome. Um, uh, the, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, um, I don't know how I got on the invitation list, but uh, I did. And it was a great thing to go and be a part of. And I looked for some of you and was quite surprised that I didn't see you there, some of you. Uh, but it was a great time. How many of you got up early in the morning to watch this? We got a few hands. How many of you recorded it? Anybody record it? You slept in and you still watched it, right? Everyone loves a good wedding. Everybody loves a good wedding, this celebration, and especially if it is the fairy tale wedding. Especially if it is the prince and the princess and you've got the carriage and everybody's wondering what's going to be worn and who are the guests going to be and what are they going to be wearing and everything that goes on around it. Everybody loves to have a great wedding. And it might surprise you to find out that even back during the time of Jesus, people loved to get together for parties and especially for weddings. Now, the way that weddings went off in Jesus' time, much different than the one that, that perhaps you witnessed yesterday, the weddings would take place oftentimes at the synagogue at sundown, and after the ceremony was concluded, the bride and groom dressed in their best would go with all of the revelers, and they would begin to walk through the city together. The progression would wind their way. It was a candlelight service as they would go from house to house, home to home, so that more and more people could greet the new couple and give them their wedding wishes. But the weird thing that would happen is that when all of that was over, the bride and groom did not go on a honeymoon. Instead, the honeymoon came to them, and there was this grand party that would happen. There would be gift giving and speech making. There would be food eating for several days. And you guessed it, there would be wine drinking. Food and wine were taken very seriously. And the host honored the guests by keeping their plates full and their cups overflowing. It was actually considered an insult if the host ever ran out of food and wine. That is how serious this hospitality was taken. So much so that there are occasions that you can read about in history where lawsuits would be brought up against the injured parties or for the injured parties if for some reason the food and wine ran out. In Hebrew, the number was translated 265 hurt, I believe is the way that goes. Rabbis said without wine, there is no joy. Wine was crucial, not for drunkenness, understand, 
Not for drunkenness, because it was considered a disgrace in this culture. But it was all about what it was demonstrating. The presence of wine stated that this was a special, special day, and that the guests were special guests. Weddings were a big deal then, just like weddings are a big deal now. And depending on your church background, it might surprise you to find out that one day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mom was in attendance, and that Jesus also, along with his disciples, made their way onto the guest list. Jesus knew what it meant to look forward to a wedding celebration. He knew what it meant to see all the plans being made by the bridegroom, wanting to have everything the best for his bride as he would build on to his own family home, a special dwelling for he and his wife. He and his disciples knew what it meant to party. In fact, whenever he was not preaching or teaching, you often find Jesus at some kind of great celebration. He would be at a party or some kind of get-together, and it just seems like Jesus enjoyed going to parties. And some of you might say, I never thought about Jesus that way. And yet it's true. In fact, it was at a wedding celebration that for the first time, Jesus revealed His divine glory to His disciples. And He does so in a very surprising way. In an act of grace, Jesus kept the party going. Now, it might seem strange to talk about parties and weddings and celebrations, given the circumstances that have taken place in our nation during the last week. How do you celebrate when your heart is broken, when you are reminded again that evil is present, and and when you're reminded that life is short? How do you celebrate the beginnings while at the same time lamenting the endings? We're going to be looking in John chapter 2, and we're going to be asking the question, why did Jesus, why did He turn water into wine on that day? And the reason might surprise you. And I think that what we're going to find as we finish And that in the midst of celebration, Jesus' eyes were on a future that was going to be very difficult. In the midst of celebration, His eyes were on sacrifice. In the midst of celebration, He was also thinking about evil that would envelop Him and His disciples. And yet also in the midst of celebration, He was thinking about you. And he was thinking about me. Before we jump into our text, let's pause and give thanks to God for the celebrations in our life, but also ask for comfort and peace for those, especially in Texas, who are grieving today. We join me in prayer. Father, life is a paradox. There are moments where we are filled with utmost joy and then at the same time can experience overwhelming sadness. And we've experienced that roller coaster this week from a distance. 
as we have wept with our own countrymen, as we have witnessed the senseless taking of life, and we have rejoiced with people across the pond celebrating a new beginning. It just doesn't seem as if these things should go together. It doesn't seem as if there is always a place for our laughter and our tears. We don't always understand how to process what goes on. Our prayers and our thoughts are with those in Texas, the parents, the the students, the brothers and sisters. Families trying to come to sense with such pain and sorrow. We have no words, and so we plead to you to send your spirit of comfort. And we ask that good shine through in the moment of evil, in that your light not be overcome by darkness. Father, we rejoice and we celebrate as we, we have graduations, we have weddings, family reunions going on this weekend, things that bring us joy. And we just say thank you for those reminders that we have of love and encouragement. And we know that you have provided those to us so that we might be able to endure times of loss and pain. Moments where we can once again experience your joy. And so we praise you for those moments and we ask for there to be more. Father, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that our hearts will be open to its message, that we would listen intently to your spirit. And Father, that we would be different tomorrow because we have spent time in this text today. And may the time that we have spent here in praise to you be something that provides us with, with courage if we are facing difficulties and pain. And may the time that we have spent here renew our strength and conviction if we are right now living in moments of triumph. For we know that you are with us no matter what the condition, no matter what the season in life, and we praise you for that. In the name of Jesus, amen. Go with me to our text, if you would, John chapter 2. It says, the wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus said. My time has is not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. And standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold about 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. And when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. 
A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you, you've kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Some things that just jump right out as you read this particular text. You know, sometimes we think that the different problems going on in our life don't really matter to God. Especially when we look and we see individuals who are dealing with extreme pain and extreme loss. And often we look at our lives and we think, you know what? It's so insignificant, the things that I'm dealing with. But I want to encourage you this morning to do what Mary did and take your problems to God. Take your problems to God. Mary would have got along well with my grandmother. She used to tell me on multiple occasions. She said, grandson, whenever you preach, be sure and tell people to take their troubles to the cross and leave them there. Tell them not to go home with them. You ever wonder why Sometimes prayer is just the last option for us. Why we wait so long, why it is that we seem to think that God doesn't care or can't do anything. Maybe we feel like the psalmist in Psalm 8 and verse 4 who said, What are mere mortals that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Yet you read through scripture and what you find out is that, that we are heirs of the Father. We are joint heirs with the Son. We are children of the kingdom of God. We are the sons and daughters of God. And the psalmist would say that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. So you take your problems to God. But then you've got to be willing to hear his solutions. Do whatever he tells you, is the word that Mary gave to the servants. I thought about a passage from Luke chapter 6 when Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say? You know, we go to God and we ask for perhaps help in our relationships, but yet we refuse to be forgiving. We go to God and we pray about our, our dating life, and yet we refuse to remain pure. We have burned bridges in our life and we go and we pray, Lord, show me a direction. Give me a word. And yet we refuse to swallow our pride. We say we want to be disciples, but yet we don't want to reorganize our priorities. Why do you call me Lord and let you don't want to do what I say? When you have, it, when you have struggles, when you have problems, you take them to God and then you must be willing to hear the solutions that he brings. Because the miracle that we're looking at today tells you that what matters to you matters to God. And you might think that, sure, when it comes to the big stuff, when it comes to the major league difficulties like death and disease and disaster, we know that God cares. But what about the small things? What about your grouchy boss? You think God cares about him? You think God cares about the finals that you're getting ready to take? What about the flat tires or the lost dogs? What about the broken dishes and the late flights? What about the toothaches and the crashed hard drives? You think these things matter to God? So, well, God can't care about that. God doesn't care about these little things. 
Just like God doesn't care about if the wine is gone, right? You see, because you're God's child, if it is important to you, then it's important to God. Moms and dads, you know this. If it hurts your child, it hurts you, right? If they're going through times of pain, if they're going through struggle, it bothers you. And you want to be able to step in oftentimes and fix it. Why do you think you have more love for your child than God has for his? If it matters to his children, then it matters to him. So go ahead and tell God what hurts you. Talk to him about the pain that you have. Talk to him about not understanding how to balance the loss that you have seen this week with the celebration and the struggles that you are having. Go ahead and talk to him. He will not turn you away. He won't think it's silly because if it matters to you, it matters to him. You take your problems to God. You do what he says. And then you shout with the psalmist, the Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. You know, it was a Jewish custom that It was a Jewish custom that you had to focus on making sure that you were ceremonially clean. That's why the water jars that are mentioned in our text were present. It's so that each guest could come in and they could wash their hands and they could wash their feet before enjoying the celebration that was taking place. And remember, because this is a celebration that's going on for many days, perhaps even weeks, you're going to have people who are coming and going to this particular party. And they want to make sure that after they've been in the marketplace and after they've been around individuals or things that their law said made them unclean and unable to worship and unable to participate in the life of the community, they need to be able to wash. And so this, these water jars were there. Imagine people coming in and washing the dirty hands and the dirty feet and putting the water up onto their arms and it's sloshing out. And now I want you to picture it from John's perspective. You see, John takes it and he turns what's going on here and he takes what was a religious requirement for ceremonial washing and he says there's something bigger that's going on. John likes to mix in his gospel events and metaphor. And the jars, as he begins to tell this story, come to represent humanity's futile attempts at perfection. Because no matter how often they would wash, they still would do things that made themselves ceremonially unclean. But when Jesus came into contact with these jars, he transformed their contents and he filled the jars with new wine and the deadness of the old covenant with its rules and its regulations was now made alive with the new covenant that Jesus had come to bring. You see, in this particular story, wine is the symbol of God's grace that comes into our lives undeserved and transforms us from the inside out because God is in the transformation business. Jesus' mom goes to him and says, they're out of wine. And in this setting, it was such a social faux pas. Because if you wanted to make sure that everyone there knew that you appreciated the bride and groom, you made sure you kept the table filled, you kept the cups overflowing. And yet Jesus says, why are you bothering me with this? Why are you coming to me about it? He says, my time hasn't come yet. And yet that's often how grace is distributed. Grace comes in those moments when it is least expected, when it is undeserved, 
when it seems like there is no other way out, but God is in the transformation business. He says, I am making everything new. The old system of having to live up to an impossible legal code was being replaced by the wine of God's grace, which washes away sin. We're cleansed from the inside. It's not just a symbol, it's actual substance where our sins are not just taken away, but we have a changed heart that now desires to love God and to live for Him. And what was going on in those vessels was just a picture of what was to come as Jesus was going to end up not just transforming water into wine, but transforming sinner into saved. As there was a wave of grace that was about to be poured out on humanity. There were six jars containing between 20 and 30 gallons apiece. And so at the very least, they contained some 120 to perhaps even 180 gallons. Now that's a lot of wine. And there's no way the guests probably could have consumed that much. So you say, well, why did Jesus make so much? I don't know. Maybe it's because God's a big giver. Maybe because he never just gives enough. That he always gives over and above. And what the guests had been earlier tasting cautiously, now they were able to drink in abundance. He gave them more than they would ever possibly be able to drink. But that's the way he does things. Especially when it comes to his grace. Paul would write to Timothy talking about his own conversion experience. And he would say, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. You know, you may be poor according to the world's standards, but you are rich towards God when you've experienced his grace. You may have nothing, but yet have everything. Because we have an extravagant God who lavishes us with blessings. And I love the way that the message paraphrase puts Psalm 145 in verse 16. He says, generous to a fault, you lavish favor on all your creatures. Understand, God's grace means that he's generous to a fault. The Bible says he gives immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. To the dying thief on a cross, he gave the gift of paradise. To a woman caught in immorality, he gave the gift of forgiveness. To a grieving father, wishing for his child back, he returns him from the grip of death. To the one who denied him, he gave the keys of the kingdom. God is lavish in his gifts. And to you and me, he gives, he gives the, the promise of an abundant life. A life that we experience here and a life that's going to continue then and beyond in this world throughout eternity. But you read through this, I don't know, maybe you just come away saying, I just don't get it. Why did Jesus reveal his glory at a party? I mean, why do it there? Why not something bigger? Why not raise the dead for his first sign of his glory? Why not go walking on water? Why did Jesus change the water to the wine? It wasn't to impress the crowd. The crowd didn't understand. They didn't know what had happened. It wasn't to get the wedding master's attention. He thought that the bridegroom somehow had made things happen and was being generous. So why did he do it for his first expression of his glory? I want you to think about this for a minute. In J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings... When Samwise Gamgee wakes up from having been rescued from the fires of Mount Doom, 
He sees that Gandalf is alive. He begins to realize what has happened and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead. He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? You know, the whole Bible says that is essentially what Jesus is going to do in the end. We're not going to be taken out of this world into heaven, but heaven is going to come down at the end of time and renew this world. Every tear will be wiped away, and in essence, Jesus came to make everything sad come untrue. And you look back over the course of this last week, you look back over the last months and years, the different evidence of evil and pain that we have seen in our society and in our world. You're saying, what is going on here? What is happening? When is it all going to end? Is there an end? And the answer is yes. There is coming a day that we will enter the eternal dwelling of God. And we will be treated to sights that we have never dreamed possible. Absent will be everything that we have feared. And present will be the best of the best of everything here and much, much more. Heaven is the place of our deepest longings, the deepest longings of our life, and it's where those things are met, where we will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into, do you know this verse? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Have you ever thought of life after this one? in the terms of eternal joy, where rapturous joy will overtake every single heartache, grief, and pain, and we will say, you have saved the best until now. You saved the best until now. You see, often in Hebrew Scriptures, God presents Himself as the bridegroom of His people. And at one instance in John's gospel, Jesus even calls himself the bridegroom. And he does so in the full awareness that according to scriptures, the God of the universe is the husband of his people. And Jesus is trying to create this this picture in showing how that he is the husband and that he is waiting, longing for the time that he might be brought together with his bride. And John expands on this theme in his revelation at the end of the New Testament. And he depicts the end of all things this way. He says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death and no sorrow and no crying or pain. You say, is it ever going to end? The shooting and the death and the destruction and the fear and the answer is yes. There's coming a day where it will all end and all of the things that have brought tears, all the things that have brought pain will be no more and all the tears that have been cried will be dried up in the love of God. He says all these things are gone forever. 
The shootings are gone. The cancer is gone. The abuse is gone. The heartache is gone. The divorce is gone. Whatever it is that has brought pain to the created of God will be gone. And as the one who is sitting on the throne then says, look, I am making everything new. Why did Jesus turn water to wine? He changed the source of the pain into a cause for celebration. You say, pain running out of wine? Oh, you don't understand how important it was in that culture at that time for that ceremony, the pain that it was going to bring to the host, the pain that it would be put on to the bridegroom and to the bride the embarrassment that they were going to suffer. You say, well, that doesn't sound like a big deal considering all the other things. Well, let me ask you something. If Jesus was willing to keep a bride and groom from being embarrassed, what do you think he's going to do for the families who have suffered loss? Loss where a husband or father has been taken away, a mother a wife has not returned home. Children have died before we would say their time. If he's concerned about the embarrassment at a wedding ceremony, what do you think he's going to do for them? What will he do for you? You see, at the end of time, there will be a feast to end all feasts. It will not be some generic banquet, but it will be a wedding feast. And it's going to celebrate the long-awaited and intimate and permanent union of God and his people. And this is how history ends. This is what Jesus came to accomplish. And so by keeping the wedding celebration going in Cana, Jesus was looking through the ages to the day when the bride, when we would finally be united with him. And then the wine of God's grace will flow as creation celebrates with joy the wedding of the ages. You think the wedding yesterday was something? Folks, you ain't seen nothing yet. On that day when God looks to Jesus and says, it's time, go get your bride. When the heavens open and the trumpet sounds and the bridegroom appears and all creation joins in celebration. You see, his work began as it will end, in joyful celebration at the wedding feast. And so Revelation 19 and verse 9 takes on new meaning. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. You might not have gotten your invitation to be at the royal wedding, but you have received an invitation to be a part of something much more spectacular. A celebration that will outdo any prince or princess, a wedding that will be talked about as eternity rolls. For friends, you and I have been invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And we have been invited because it is a feast given 
in our honor as we join with our bridegroom. As together with Jesus then, all creation celebrates and the cries fill out eternity. Glory in heaven, glory to the highest, because God is with his people. I wish we knew that type of experience. I wish we could understand it somehow right now. Because if we could understand that type of wedding celebration and that type of joy and what it means to truly be removed from all the pain and the heartache that is this life, it would change not only our worship, it would change our life. It would change the way that we go into work tomorrow. It would change the way we take on school. It would change the way we have our relationships with our neighbors. It would change the interactions that we have here within the hallways because our focus would always eternally be on the fact that we are the bride of Christ and that no matter what takes place in this life, there is a wedding day coming that we will be a part of where all of our tears will be wiped away. And we will spend eternity in celebration. Do you believe in the Lamb of God? Would you be willing to confess that belief this morning? Would you be willing to die to yourself, be buried in water, the act of baptism, so that you can be made new today, looking forward to the time when everything becomes We're going to give you this opportunity. We're going to sing to encourage each other. And I want to ask if you would sing as someone who expects to be at the wedding feast. Let's stand and give God praise.